You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. March Votour is the 1%. He made his fortune in oil and cryptocurrency. He's handsome, charming, and has a heart of gold. It's hard to believe he's still single, only it isn't, because March isn't real. He's a serial grifter and romance con artist who's tricked women and men across Canada, the U.S., Vietnam, and the Czech Republic out of over a million dollars. And that's just what we know of. His trail of destruction has led to heartbreak, bankruptcies, foreclosures, and even PTSD. How could you not be a psychopath? How could you ruin so many people's lives and not care and walk away? It's dark evil. Romance fraud, business fraud, investment fraud, medical fraud. You know, they say a really good liar puts some truths in there to make it easier and make the story more believable because he has conviction about that because he knows it's true. He goes by Marcel. He goes by Mark with an M-A-R-C and M-A-R-K. He goes by Andre. He also goes by Dre. We know him to go by Andy. We know him to go by Martin. We know him to go by March. I think he has a character that he's built for each one of them. He doesn't work. This is his job. He is good at what he does. But you know what? Bravo. You're good at what you do. But we're, we're good at what we do, too. And we're going to get you. In episode three, you heard the story of Jody McMullen, a medical auditor who was rebuilding her life after a divorce, only to get crushed by Marcel's web of deceit and destruction. You also heard how Kim found Jody, and the two of them joined forces to become detectives in their own cases. They soon discovered details about Marcel's dark past that made them sick to their stomach. He offered me and my husband six-figure jobs. $82,000, it destroyed our life. And the more I'm telling him to stop, the faster he's talking and getting out details that are just so alarming and so disturbing that I finally pull over to the side of the road, stop the car, put it in park, and say, you can get out and walk. And I said, or you can stop talking and don't ever, ever do that to me again, ever. I've known Marcel since I was 10 years old. That's how old I was when I met him. I think I'm the only victim who can say that. Chapter 4, Not Just Romance. A warning for our listeners, this episode contains sexually explicit content. It's now September 2018, and Kim and Jody have been working together for almost three months. Through their discovery of Marcel's forged check, Jody is able to get the police to reopen her case. But they say it will take time to gather enough evidence to support a warrant. In the meantime, Kim and Jody continue to dig. Kim starts a Facebook page devoted to tracking down Marcel called Finding Fraudster. She teaches herself about ad campaigns and tries to connect with victims that way. But this was like something completely new for me. So I ended up going on this road of 
becoming a detective, learning about how I could get reverse engineer social media, how I could find new people. Um, and um, I even got a burner phone and I, any information I had, I was calling people and, you know, um, and I, and I just went on this path that I, I knew that I had to be unstoppable. That is kind of the road that we're, that we're heading on. Jody works the fake Facebook profile of Marcel and eventually gets a hit from his first cousin, a shady character himself. Figure out that I was talking to him and that I wasn't really Andre, but I was pretending to be Andre. And he was telling us stuff and just talking like he was talking to Andre. This is how Jody and Kim discover that Marcel has a secret family, a family he has since abandoned. And we're just like, holy shit. We found out he was married, three children. He told all of us he never had any children. His ex wife is in uh, Quebec. Soon after that, Jody gets another message on one of Andre's fake profiles. His youngest daughter reached out. I can't imagine what they're going to, what those kids are going to feel when they hear that their dad said he had no kids. He, I remember seeing a picture and uh, he had shown me a family picture at Christmas one time. It was probably about 2010, 2011. And I said, oh, that's a cute little girl. Who's that? He's like, that's my niece. It was his daughter, his oldest daughter. After this discovery, Kim and Jody are able to find the Facebook profile of Marcel's ex. Let's call her Sandra. They reach out to Sandra in a private message to find out she only speaks French. Over the course of many translated back and forth chats, they begin to piece together who Marcel really is. She hasn't had child support for three children since 2013. According to Sandra, Marcel is a total deadbeat. Apparently, he owed a paltry $300 a month, but he has never paid. Kim and Jody also find out more about his past. Marcel was born in New Brunswick, in a small Acadian fishing town of less than 3,000 people called Cap Pelay. It's a town where everybody knows everybody. He left New Brunswick after getting into some trouble, allegedly stealing money from his family before eventually settling in Quebec after meeting Sandra in 1999. Pink Moon has had on and off contact with Sandra for the better part of a year. She is understandably nervous about coming forward, but she did reveal that the situation has affected the children and that she wants him caught and brought to justice. And let's just say she used much harsher language than that. According to her, Sandra and Marcel had a tumultuous 10-year relationship where he controlled the money, was emotionally abusive, and even made threats to hurt her. He also ruined Sandra's credit after taking out secret loans and cards in her name and never paying them back. Sandra's even been named in legal proceedings because of Marcel, mostly creditors trying to get their money back. It was through Sandra that Kim and Jody were able to find the other victims in Quebec. Yes, there are others. Many others. Between the years of 2013 and 2015, so five years before he met Kim and Jody, 
Marcel was busy carrying out at least three concurrent scams in Quebec. And that's just what we know of. The earliest victim the ladies could trace was a vivacious and hardworking woman named Marjolaine, who is now in her 50s. Her saga begins years before any money exchange took place. Here's some of her story. It's heartbreaking, but aren't they all? A quick note for our listeners, the dialogue and reenactments with the French-Canadian survivors in this episode have been reconstructed from interviews and text messages. Anyway, on to the story. It was 2011 and Marjolaine and her partner, let's call him Samuel, are living in Drummondville, Quebec, a small city of less than 100,000 people. Marjolaine works at a manufacturing plant, and although the hours are long, she enjoys what she does. One summer day in July, she and Samuel are taking their usual bike ride and stop at their local corner store for some snacks. It's there that they strike up a conversation with Marcel. He's dressed casually, but looks put together. He's wearing crisp new blue jeans and a fresh t-shirt. Yes, yes. The job is in Alberta for several weeks. It's on the rig. Yeah? Just confirm with me by text by the end of the week. Okay. You take care, too. Uh, Excuse me. I just want to say, those are nice bikes. Oh, you think so? They're nothing special, just city bikes. They weren't expensive. That's all you need. I love to ride. Best form of transportation. My bike was stolen not too long ago. Oh, I'm Marcel. I'm Marjolaine, Marjo, and this is my partner, Samuel. Nice to meet you. Did you say you work on the rigs in Alberta? Yeah, I'm a partner in a company that works out there. I'm just screwing up for an upcoming project. Why? I've just always found that work interesting. Alberta sounds so beautiful. (laughs) It can be. Not the rigs themselves, though. Well, I think they are beautiful, but not many do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you're ever interested in learning more about work on the rigs, I'm your guy. We're always looking for responsible people. Do you have Facebook? Yes, we do, but he's never on. You can add me. Marjolaine. Bouchard. Marcel Vautour. Okay, done. I've added you. It was nice meeting you. Not too long after that encounter, Marcel, Marjolaine, and Samuel begin chatting through Facebook. Before they get very far into any conversations of business on the rigs, Marcel insists that Marjolaine and Samuel go on a double date with him and his wife, Sandra. Marjo and Sandra both love to dance. They end up going to a local bar with live music. Marcel mostly hangs out on his own. Marjolaine says that Marcel would often be outside smoking. And then he would come in occasionally to have a drink and Sandra would be dancing with everybody else. By the end of the night, he would have bought her so many drinks that she, quote, wouldn't be able to stand up. Marjolaine goes to his house a couple of times and meets his kids. Their family life seems normal, at least as far as she can tell. Over the next few months, the two couples continue to meet up, typically at a bar for dancing. 
During that time, Marcel begins to tell Marjolaine and Samuel more about an opportunity to work with him in Alberta. The work would be in office management. He promises it'll be a really lucrative endeavor. They're interested, but then Marcel goes radio silent for a few months. Marjolaine and Samuel can't get the opportunity out of their minds, so Marjo decides to follow up by email. Hello, Marcel. I hope you are doing well and are in good shape. We and Drummondville are doing well, but we would like to go and make some money in Alberta by working for you. I wish you could take us up there. You know, since you taught me about this project, I can't stop but thinking about it. I'd like for you to tell me if it's a real option or if I'm dreaming in color. An answer would be appreciated, and if it's positive, give us an approximate date. I would love to go and work for you. Thank you. Kindly answer me, s'il vous plaît. Marcel responds and lets Marjolaine know that he's currently on site, but we'll get back to her once he has more information. Weeks turn into months, and it's now 2013. Marcel reaches back out to Marjolaine with an opportunity. He's hiring for a job site. He tells her that she and Samuel will be working in the office, but because of the line of work, they'd need to invest in some specialty courses and buy equipment in advance. He sends them an invoice from MV Consulting, his own company, for just under $4,000. It details a list of courses, mostly web courses, including things like bear awareness and wildlife safety, as well as hotel accommodations for on-site classes to be held in Alberta. Marjolaine and Samuel are extremely interested. They have some hesitation. They own a home they love in Quebec a home they've worked their whole lives for. And on top of that, they're both happy with their jobs. To put their minds at ease, Marcel connects them with one of his employees, a Janine Leger. Here's some of Janine's first email to Marjo, truncated for brevity. Hi, Marjolaine. My name is Janine. Marcel probably told you about me. I look forward to getting to know you and working with other French people. When are you thinking about coming? Marcel told me that you still have courses to do. Which ones? Are you eager to come? I've worked on the rig since 2010. The office is not too organized, but it's been better since Marcel got involved. I love it. I like him as a boss. Marcel takes a lot of responsibility and treats his employees very well. You're going to like him as a boss, too. We don't just feel like a number here. The base camp where I'm at now is new. The food's very good. The rooms are very clean. LOL, because it's us who do the cleaning. The pay is also incredible. $2,300 per week. It all depends on how many overtime hours you put in. Yes, the courses cost a lot up front, but this year I made $96,000. Anyway, I'm going to go to bed. If you have any questions about the job, base camp, or whatever, don't hesitate. Have a good evening. See you. Janine. 
After a few back-and-forth emails with Janine, Marjolaine and Samuel feel more reassured. They start the process of getting their certifications. They pay Marcel almost $4,000, and he sends them links to a few initial online tests. Marjolaine even flies out to Alberta, on her own dime, to complete one of the on-site tests, which she takes online in a hotel room. Because Marcel is such a busy businessman, he puts Marjolaine in touch with his assistant, Jonathan. They communicate through text messages. Over the next few months, Marcel is frequently out of touch for a few days to a few weeks at a time. Sometimes even a month. Whenever Marjolaine can't reach Marcel, Jonathan provides an answer. He's out of cellular range. He's in a meeting. He's tending to an on-site emergency. He's in the hospital with heart issues, or his Crohn's is acting up. And whenever Marcel makes promises but doesn't deliver, it's Jonathan's fault. He's very disorganized. It's actually Jonathan who's supposed to coordinate Marjolaine and Samuel's start date. It's now 2014, and Marjolaine and Samuel paid for their courses back in 2013. Naturally, they're getting antsy. They wanted to know basic information. What's the start date? When are their new lives going to begin? Jonathan keeps sending dates, and then there's always an unforeseen delay. Things carry on this way for the next year. Marcel is in and out of touch in between important jobs, And flaky Jonathan means well, but is less than competent. Finally, midway through 2014, something big happens. Marjo, I have a huge investment opportunity. I think you and Samuel will be very interested. Marcel claims he works for Woodside Energy Canada, the Canadian division of an Australian oil company that has over 3,000 employees and a global presence. There's a short window to invest, though, so Marjolaine and Samuel need to act quick. We ended up remortgaging our home to take up the opportunity. It was very Very stressful. Getting all that agreements at the bank. They make a big deposit. Over $50,000 in one transaction. You made a great business decision. There will be dividends and you will make back almost one third of your investment in a year. Over the next few months, Marcel switches phone numbers a bunch of times. He transfers his number to Jonathan. Sometimes he's on his satellite phone. Sometimes he's without his computer and on the road, so he asks Marjolaine for her number or email address over and over again through Facebook. Throughout this entire time, Jonathan sends out mass text messages from head office that go to all new employees. These messages sound very official. They begin with, quote, general message, followed by some kind of formally written wording that makes it feel like there are a lot of other people in the same predicament, waiting for their start date. Often, after periods of silence, Marjo will get a text from Marcel or Jonathan asking why she hasn't replied to the text they sent her. I just thought it was poor connection. You know, the reason I did not receive the messages. Finally, after much pleading and probing, Jonathan confirms Marjolaine and Samuel's official start date. 
They will fly out to Alberta on August 3rd to be on site, take more courses, and then start work the following week. Jonathan, are you sure this time? We will leave our jobs if you're sure. He tells them that this is it. Shortly after, he lets them know that the final cost of the accommodations in Alberta will be a little over $2,000 and that they will receive that money back after their probation ends. I found it a bit weird, but I just thought those were the rules at the company. Marcel texted me that he did not like them also. Marjo even pays a little extra, given the fact that she's going to be moving with her beloved cat. Before they fly out, their travel date shifts again. This time it's bearable, just a week difference, August 9th. Jonathan gives Marjo the final instructions. He told me that we were to meet him and Marcel at 16.30 at Archibald Restaurant at the Montreal Airport so he could give us uh, our plane tickets. He also gave us the booking reservation number in case of problems. The last communication Marjo has with Marcel is July 28th. The last time she hears from Jonathan is August 5th, and everything appears all systems go. He was responding normally. I had not uh, reason to doubt anything. We were excited and dreaming. August 9th comes. Marjo and Samuel are beaming. They're ready to start this next chapter. It's taken so long to get here. They've packed everything they can into their suitcases. They have their cat with them in a carrier, ready for the flight. Once they arrive, something's off. They're told they can't get to the part of the airport where Archibald is located without tickets, without passing security. And their reservation number turns up invalid. Marjo sends a frantic text, the same one, first to Jonathan and then to Marcel. Where are you? We're at the airport. Here's some of what she sends to Jonathan after that. Her panic is palpable. I don't understand. Our reservation is not working. What is going on? Why? Text me, please. We're at the airport and we do not know what to do. I hope there is a good explanation for this. Otherwise, I will be devastated. And here are her texts to Marcel. The reservation is not working. I do not find this funny. What is happening right now? I am starting to panic. You have to understand. I am at the airport and the code for the tickets not working. Respond, please. I do not understand. We're at the airport waiting and no news from you nor Jonathan. Could you please, please call me? Do you have an emergency? What? Speak to me. I do not understand anything. I am very disappointed. You made us quit our jobs. For what? Respond. Because this is not funny at all. Marjo sends messages like this until August 15th. After that, she sends one final message to Marcel. I am beside myself for not having any news. I understand now that I screwed myself over by believing in your beautiful promises. I thought you were sincere. Tabarnak was wrong. Are you the one that is going to find me another job? There is something not right with you for making me quit. 
crise de merde. I am in pieces because of you. In total, Marjolaine and Samuel lost $82,068.83 of their hard-earned money to Marcel Vautour. And she has records for every single transaction. That doesn't even factor in any damages from quitting her job or the time spent. After reality set in, Marjolaine got her documentation together and went to the police. She says the first officer was a woman who seemed sympathetic. A Quebec warrant was issued. After that, her case got transferred to a male detective, and she didn't hear from anyone after that. She went to the police station to inquire about the case in 2017, and the detective on duty told her he can't help because it's not his case. She insisted and told the detective to look up her file. After speaking with his boss, he came back and told her the case was closed. Even though the warrant was technically still active, no one was looking for Marcel Vautour. I give up after that because that has destroyed me. And I do not want to think about it anymore and feel destroyed again. Marjolaine says the experience was devastating to her emotionally and financially. Samuel was lucky enough to get his job back. But she's had to make ends meet through odd jobs like cleaning. She tried going to a support group for victims of fraud, but it wasn't for her. She's just fortunate that her partner understands what she's going through. Marjolaine's greatest hope is that she gets to confront Marcel face to face. I want to be able to look at him and tell him about everything wrong he has done. And I want him to be caught in Quebec so that I could be at all the proceedings. Marjo isn't very optimistic about the case. She feels abandoned. The police are just as shit today as they were before. I'm just another worker from Drummondville. They do not care. Nobody died. This is not important to them. She's in the same boat as Kim, Jody, and Andrea, left to fend for herself against a serial con artist who keeps getting away with his crimes. And at the same time that Marcel was playing fast and loose with Marjolaine's life, he was also scamming two other French women. One of them was his neighbor. Let's call her Francis, from when he lived with his ex, Sandra. I've known Marcel since I was 10 years old. That's how old I was when I met him. I think I'm the only victim who can say that. About a year or so after she first meets him, Marcel moves his family to New Brunswick. He comes back a year later and gets in touch with Francis again when she's about 13. He told me he was banished from New Brunswick and a lot of other things you shouldn't say to a kid. He told me he was unhappy and wanted to leave Sandra. He talked about his financial troubles. He also tells Frances that she's like a daughter to him, which means a lot to her, given her relationship with her own father. Frances's mom takes pity on this sweet but troubled guy. She lends him some money and even her car occasionally. Over time, Marcel leaves Sandra and ends up with another woman. Let's call her Sarah. And he moves into her large countryside home about half an hour away. 
Sarah was rich, but her husband had recently passed away, so she was very vulnerable at the time. She wasn't in the best place. Over the next few years, Marcel comes in and out of Frances's life. It's now 2014 and she's 18 and going through a tough time, confused about her future and recovering from a personal tragedy. Marcel seems to appear at just the right moment, her personal savior. He says he's doing well now financially. He tells her, you probably know what's coming next, that there's an opportunity out on the rigs in Alberta. He and Sarah are already out there. Francis just needs to pay for some on-site certification courses. He got me to convince my mom to pay for the classes, $3,000. He promised me that his boss would pay me back after the probation period. Marcel then comes to meet Francis in Quebec and plans for the two to drive together to Alberta in her car. On the drive, he seemed very stressed. He was always on his phone and he kept talking about e-transfers. He kept trying to hide his conversations every time we stopped at Tim Hortons. At one point, he and Francis make a stop for the night. And to her surprise, Marcel sleeps with another woman. They also have to make a stop at a hospital because of Marcel's Crohn's disease. When they get to Alberta, he takes her to a trailer park. He was living in this crappy trailer with Sarah. It made me wonder, what the hell does he do with his money? I didn't want to stay there. I ended up staying at the hotel. Three days later, Marcel tells her there's no job for her because her English is too poor. He promises he's going to reimburse her. She wants to leave as fast as possible and hops on the first flight back. Marcel says he'll pay to courier her things back home, but they never arrive. Francis is left in debt and without a car. I kept messaging him on Facebook. He kept making promises to send back my things and give me back my money. When I had enough, I told him directly, you lied to me, you conned me. After that, radio silence. Marcel deletes his account. Three months later, Francis gets a message from Sarah. She says she and Marcel have separated, that he's crazy, and that he, quote, ruined her. He made her sell her house. He controlled her money and it was all gone. Through their conversations with Marcel's ex-wife, Jody and Kim have been able to find out that Sarah allegedly lost over $150,000. Marcel ruined her credit and supposedly also stole from her family upwards of $70,000. Francis says Sarah has suffered a lot of psychological trauma, including PTSD. She's in therapy. And the neighborhood she lives in now is a far cry from how she lived before Marcel wreaked havoc on her life. We reached out to Sarah and she just couldn't bring herself to relive the experience at this time. Here's Francis again. I considered going to the police, but me and my mom decided not to because we didn't want any trouble with March. He did get in touch with Francis a year after he disappeared, when he was supposedly in Thailand. He said he needed a break because Sandra had taken his kids from him. He asked Francis to forgive him, though he never actually admitted that he did anything intentionally. He said Francis was his last child and that he was very sick with Crohn's. 
Francis was cold to him, and after that, he disappeared, deleting his Facebook account yet again. By the end of September, Kim and Jody have pieced together a timeline of Marcel's cons. They're overwhelmed by what they've learned. In October, the case goes cold. They don't get any new leads. Then, on November 1st, 2018, Jody and Kim get a long message on one of the fake Facebook profiles. It's Andrea Speranza, the fire captain from Nova Scotia. Here's Jody. She found mm-hmm. that Facebook page and saw the words beware. So then she reached out through Messenger to Kim's alias account and messaged her and said, I think I need to talk to you. I think I just got conned by this guy. With caution, Kim calls Andrea on her burner phone to vet the situation. Then Kim calls Jody. It's like, I, we got somebody in Nova Scotia, and I'm like, oh my God, Nova Scotia? Like, how is this guy getting around so fast? So we reached out to her. We, had, we were on the phone with her for over an hour. And all she kept saying was, motherfucker, motherfucker, Jesus, motherfucker. Like, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. So then she's like, nope, we're going to catch this motherfucker. We're not stopping until we catch him. Kim and Jody's twosome grows to three. Each of the women is hell-bent on bringing Marcel to justice. Andrea was already beginning to learn about the depth of Marcel's lies through her own sleuthing. A couple of weeks after Andrea connects with Kim and Jody, she gets an urgent call at her fire station from a local couple, Heather and Henry, that brings her right back to her own relationship with Marcel, who, if you remember, she knew as March. Henry had sent a message saying, we're looking for Andrea Speranza. And then they left their number and I called them and they were like, we have JB. And I was like, what? And I thought JB was involved the whole time until they contacted me. Remember how Andrea met March over at Shuby Campground in Nova Scotia? So Henry is a handyman who works for Marcia, March's supposed stepmom. Heather is his wife. The story they tell Andrea is so bizarre, it's hard to believe. It turns out Marcia isn't March's stepmom at all. And remember March's French mentee, JB, and how Andrea thought he was also in on the con? Well, he'd been taken just as much as Andrea. It's hard to get the full picture, though, because JB doesn't speak any English, and Henry and Heather don't speak any French. Henry tells Andrea what he's been able to piece together from Google Translate. After the campground closed for the season, right around the time he ghosted Andrea, March and JB began living with Henry and Heather in Yarmouth, a couple of hours outside of Halifax. JB claimed March owed him thousands for work he had done for him and for classes March insisted he needed for certification to work on the oil rigs. Apparently, he left JB with nothing and even stole his IDs. When Andrea hangs up the phone, the first thing she does is reach out to Marsha at Shuby Campground to get a more complete picture. And what exactly happened between her and March? Here's Marsha. So when Andrea finally called me and got in touch with me, she had told me that March had told her that the reason he was at 
the campground was because I was his stepmother and that I had needed help because they were short-staffed. Through their conversation, Andrea learns that March never actually owned the fancy trailer he claimed was his. That belonged to Marcia. The whole time he was dating Andrea, he was living out of a tent with JB. So why was Marcia okay with March calling her his stepmom? Yes, I I did get the, the nickname mom from some of the staff members playfully because I sometimes acted like a mother. So, you know, um, a lot of my staff shared things with me that perhaps they wouldn't with other bosses. I had an open door. And if they had issues in their personal lives, I never, ever, you know, stopped them from sharing. Uh, So, yes, I, you know, on occasion got called mom. The answer is simple. Marsha is good people, and March took advantage to make his con more believable. Allow me to paint a picture of who Marsha is and how she came to know March Fautour. Marsha is 70 years old, although in 2018 she would have been in her late 60s. She looks at least a decade younger. She has this vibrant spirit that comes out in the way she talks. She's adventurous and artsy. She hikes twice a day and has a foster dog she adores. She hiked the Camino de Santiago in Spain and France in 2016, walking over 800 kilometers, and she's planning on doing it again. Marsha's passion is taking care of people. At this point, it's in her blood. She's been working in the hospitality industry since she was 12 and managing Shuby Campground for 15 years. The 2018 season was going to be a big one for her. She planned to retire. Marsha hoped her last season would be memorable, but not like this. On the last June 10th that she would ever work, at 9 a.m., two hours before check-in time, March found his way to the Shuby Campground maid office and leaned on the counter. I know I'm early, but I'm hoping you might have a spot for me. You will not believe the night I had. Oh, yeah? Well, for the last couple of months, I've been taking my time cycling across Canada. I started in Quebec and just made it here. My goal was to see the Atlantic provinces from the road. Wind in my hair, you know? It's a completely different vantage point. Anyway, I work on the rigs in Vietnam, but I'm off for three months. So I thought, when else am I going to do this? You cycled from Quebec? Wow. I traveled the Camino myself, but that was around 800 kilometers. Wow. I've always wanted to do that. That's a huge accomplishment. I know. Thank you. I'm proud of myself. So, um, anyway. Well, last night, I pitched my tent in a field because I was so exhausted. And in the middle of the night, the cops made me pack up my stuff because it wasn't official. And it was pouring rain. Anyway, I walked for miles and end up at the Timmy's next to the campground. And now I'm here and hoping you can show some kindness to a very tired old man. Name's March Wotou, by the way. Oh, you're not old. And I'm Marsha. You're very kind, Marsha. My body sure feels like I'm 100 right now. (laughs) Impressed and feeling compassionate, 
Marsha obliges and lets March check in early. And then she does something she never does, which seems to be a pattern with people who meet March. She lets him pay by cash instead of credit. And normally, I don't do that. But again, this was a guy who, you know, bigger than life, traveling on his bicycle from Quebec, very well-spoken. He was bilingual. He, I had no reason to doubt the fact that, that he would be a problem. Never for a minute did I think that he would cause me any grief. Marsha even feels compelled to do a little extra. Look, March, I can give you a little discount too. It's just 10%. That's what I give to my European RVers. How long do you plan to be here? Oh, thank you. I never say no to a discount. And I'm not sure how long I'll stay. I injured my knee a few days ago, probably from all the hills. So I'm thinking a few days, maybe a week, just until it feels good again. Well, okay. Welcome to Shuby Campground. Over the next few days, March starts weaving himself into the fabric of the campground. He has a way with people, a charm that enchants everyone he meets. One of the things that March really enjoyed doing was hanging out at the front desk. And we did not have like tables and chairs in there and so on because we're very small. The office is very small. We didn't want to encourage a lot of campers coming in um, and spending their days there because of privacy issues and, and so on. He just had that way about him that when he walked through the door, the staff were happy to have his company. He's very engaging. He has amazing stories, you know, and some of them unbelievable. (laughs) And when it was slow, the staff found him to be, you know, good company. And and they didn't mind him being in there. He never sat down. He would just come in and, and stand there at the, the counter um, and, and talk to them. And it wasn't just the staff that he impresses. But the other thing was, is that they didn't mind him being there because when campers would come in to check in, they would just have to say one thing about their life. And March seemed to have been there done that or knew, you know, something about what they were talking about. Over the next little while, March reveals more and more about his past, a story we've heard before. He says, He was born in Quebec, that his parents were heroin addicts, and that that was the only life that he knew as a child were addicted parents, that at the age of 14, they introduced him to heroin, where he became a heroin addict. You know what happens next. He's homeless and meets his mentor, Cal, while sitting, this time, on a park bench. And he gives Cal a cigarette. Then, this mysterious man becomes his saving grace. He got off the heroin It turned his life around, and then it was a success story. He started working on the rigs. He became a manager on the rigs. And then money-wise, he became, you know, financially stable. He owned a beautiful home out in British Columbia. 
a motorcycle, a boat, a great big truck. And he had photos to go along with these. He showed photos of his house. He showed photos of everything. Then, not too long into his stay, someone new appears. March had been at the campground only about four or five days, I don't even think a week, when this young man appeared who knew March. He came on foot. Whether he caught a bus there, I don't know. And he was from France, and he didn't speak a word of English. And he was in his late 20s. March introduced him to us and wanted to add him to his site. It was JB. And so then begins the journey with the two of them staying there at the campground. Now, March had told us that he had met him in Quebec and that um, he was getting him a job on the rigs on his team. But in order for him to work on the rigs, he would have to take these courses, which were, there were courses here in Nova Scotia and Halifax, and another uh, survival course in Yarmouth. A couple of weeks later, Marcia's right-hand man and the caretaker of the campground, Henry, has to leave Shuby immediately to tend to a family tragedy. That leaves Marsha in a bind. It's just before the first long weekend of the summer, and he was going to be gone for at least two weeks. She has a big tour group coming in, and everything needs to be set up. And then there was the usual maintenance, plumbing, and electrical work that had to be done. March came up with the idea that him and JB could help. So here we have JB, March. They're going to be the answers to my prayers, you know, in terms of making sure we get through this long weekend. And that first long weekend in July was a major success. When, when that huge convoy came in, we had it all figured out as to how we were going to take them down. We stopped them at the gate, talk to them, give them all this information, and then take them in, get them into their sites, they back them into their sites, and then the next one, and so on and so forth. And we'd have a whole package for them. And March would lead them down to their site with the golf cart and then help them get all set up, get plugged in. And we did it and it worked out perfectly. High five. The campers were happy. I was happy. And again, he's talking to them and he's getting to know them. And they're getting to know him. Over the next couple of weeks, while Henry is away, March and JB tend to the many needs of the campground. And they're really good at it. Marsha works out an agreement where, in exchange for their work, they get their campsite for free and then get paid for any hours beyond that. This means they would have to be set up on payroll. March doesn't like that. They fought it all the way. March fought it all the way of JB being put on the payroll. He wanted him to be paid in cash, and he had his elaborate story of how his parents in France needed the money and that JB had to send money home to his family every week and thinking in France? <laughs> you know, I understand that in places, you know, in, in different 
third world countries, but France, but again, you know, I thought, okay, he's helping out his parents and so on. So for the most part, because March and JB work odd jobs that the campground would normally contract out for, March provides invoices and the two get paid cash. More formal payroll does eventually get set up, but that doesn't happen until August. And I would pay March. And March would then pay JB. Thought it was perfectly okay because JB couldn't speak. I thought, here's this wonderful man taking this young man underneath his wing and giving him such a great opportunity and was looking out for him. March and JB continue to work at the campground even after Henry returns. Everything seems to be going exceptionally well, but Marcia begins to notice some odd things. About a month into the work arrangement, JB's usually pleasant attitude begins to change. And then all of a sudden, JB is starting to get angry. It was hard for Marcia to discern why because of JB's limited English, but the change was noticeable. He could say hello. That was about it. But he always had a hello and always was very pleasant and very upbeat and smiling. And suddenly he would not respond to me at all if I said hello to him. He wouldn't even look at me. He wouldn't even acknowledge me. And I could see he was angry, but I couldn't figure out why he was angry. Although Marcia can't speak French, some of her staff were bilingual. Somehow it came to light that he wasn't making any money. And I'm thinking, he's not making any money. What does he mean he's not making any money? And then March informed me that he owed him $15,000. He tells Marcia that JB owed him money for all of the certification courses March paid for. He also says he's not just withholding money because of JB's debt. It was for his own protection. And then March said, and when he does have money in his pocket, he goes and plays some machines and loses it all. This is the same story he told Andrea. Over the next several weeks, there are other odd things that Marcia looks past. She still feels like March is a good guy. These feel like small misunderstandings or things that are easily explained away. First, it's the length of March's stay. A few days turn into a few weeks, which turn into a few months. March was supposedly there on a three-month hiatus from work. Well, he has an explanation for that. He says he can't go back to Vietnam because he's having tax issues. According to him, he thought the money he made there was his, so he never reported the income, and now he owed back taxes to the Canadian government. Here's Marcia again. And then he went on to say how he had to put his house up for sale in order to pay for these taxes that he owed. And that the house was also in his wife's name. So she had to come from Vietnam to Canada to sign over papers so that he could actually sell the house. And he showed me pictures of the house and it was quite extraordinary. And, and so, of course, I'm thinking, why are you here? Why, why are you here at the campground? So he wasn't purposely cheating on his taxes, and he's supposedly straightening things up with his Vietnamese ex-wife. This is something we haven't heard before. But in any case, Marsha looks the other way. Another thing that makes Marsha scratch her head is an incident with the laundry. 
Shuby has on-site coin laundry facilities for the campers to use. On one particular day, Marsha is going over the daily income report. Usually those machines generate around $150 per day, but the amount recorded that day is only $4. So when I went to the staff and I said, there's a discrepancy here and I'm, I'm not sure why, and, and they said, well, March went and, went and got the coin. And I said, oh, well, what did he come back with? Well, not much. I said, okay. Of course, I didn't say anything to them. I said, okay, it's just, I'm sure that there's just an error somewhere. So from that point on, I was the only one who collected the coin. By the end of July, Marsha notices something else that seems a little off. I would have people coming into having an issue, maybe with their amperage on the site, maybe the breaker was going and they weren't happy about that. And they would say, want to speak to the manager. And I would say, yes, that's me. And they would say, no, 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 the man. We want to speak to him. And I would go, I would say, no, there's, there's no man manager here. But again, Marsha brushes it off. Oh, they just assume he was because he's so knowledgeable because he watched me. He listened to me. He knew what they expected. And so he became knowledgeable enough to be able to answer their questions as if he'd been there for quite a while. They felt very comfortable with him. They just automatically believed he was the manager. A few weeks later, March tells Marsha he's seeing someone. He told me that he had met someone very special. He told me that she was the captain, fire captain of Dartmouth. He told me about her and he was pretty pretty taken with her. He was so impressed. She had her own home. She was very athletic. She had this camp courage that she had started years ago that helped young women that were interested in going into the field of, you know, EMTs and um, police officers and firemen and so on. He's telling me all this. And then he went on to say, you know, it's it's just motivated me now. And I'm seriously thinking that I'm going to do something of the same. He tells Marsha exactly what he told Andrea. So he, he decided that he wanted to open up this camp for youths at risk. And uh, Andrea was going to help him with this. I thought that was wonderful, and he was pretty excited. There was one missing piece, though, the land. March becomes vocal about his dreams of building the camp. And Henry, Marsha's handyman, takes notice. My handyman knew someone who owned a lot of land. This was good for my handyman, you know, to think that he could help his friend by selling all this land for this man who had a big dream. Henry takes March on trips to Yarmouth, where he's from, to meet his friend and see the land in nearby Digby. Things seem like they're really moving along on the business front, and Henry and March are becoming close friends. March even orders surveyor's drawings of the land. As the end of the camping season is approaching, something happens that really starts to shift Marsha's perspective on March. By this point, Henry has really opened up to him and begins sharing his faith. On their trips to Yarmouth, March and JB go to church with Henry and his wife. My handyman's wife was quite happy to find out that March was a Christian, a believer. He was born again. But that strikes Marsha as odd, because March told her at the very beginning 
that he was an atheist. Even worse, when March gets back from his trips, he ridicules Henry and his wife's beliefs behind their backs. That was kind of a flag for me as to something darker about March than I had witnessed before, because I had always seen someone that was kind, accommodating, generous with his time, good listener, all those things, and suddenly he's mocking someone's faith. A couple of weeks later, something else happens that cements Marsha's increasing fears about March. It's now September, and Marsha is in the market for an older van. She needs something that she can use to help transport larger items. And March suggested that uh, he come with me to look at it because he knew all about vehicles. He knew exactly whether it would be a good deal or not. And so I took him with me, and we went and we looked at the van, and I ended up buying the van. According to Marsha, the van turns out to be a major lemon, but that's a sidebar. On their way back to Shuby, as they're driving together, things take a horrible turn. So you know I've been with a lot of women. A lot. Uh, okay. One of the ones I was dating a while back was a total freak in the sack. <laughs> All right, March. <laughs> you don't understand. She loves my <laughs> She fucking love it. <laughs> March, stop. This is disgusting. This is this is totally inappropriate. Please. Her mouth, she, she takes it into her mouth and then she and she bit onto her By this point, Marsha is beyond uncomfortable. She feels like a hostage in her own car. I said, you need to stop talking. And he laughed. He laughed. And the more that I tell him to stop talking, the faster he's speaking to get the details out. And these are details, like we're talking a hardcore pornography details. To me, a woman who he does work for, a woman just, a, a woman that's really a stranger to him, not a confidant, it was totally inappropriate. Marsha continues to plead for March to quit, but he doesn't. And the more I'm telling him to stop, the faster he's talking and getting out details that are just so alarming and so disturbing that I finally, pull over to the side of the road, stop the car, put it in park, and say, you can get out and walk, or you can stop talking, and don't ever, ever do that to me again. Ever. And he put his hands up in the air, you know, like, okay, 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 okay. And it, from that moment on, I looked at him totally differently. The incident shakes Marsha deeply. I almost felt dirty, if that makes any sense at all. I felt so, I couldn't get away from him. And the thing was, what was most disturbing is that he seemed to actually be getting a pleasure out of my discomfort. I thought, what makes you think? That you can do that? What makes you think that you can do that to this person 
And then again, to me, by making me so uncomfortable. On the rest of the drive back, she starts questioning herself. What did I ever say? What did I ever do? What did I ever say that made him think that he could share something like that with me? It's not like he was sharing, you know, this wonderful love story with a good friend. He was making a mockery of the whole thing. Marcia says that if this had happened earlier on, she would have fired him. But with only a few weeks left of the season, she plans to avoid him as much as she can. Marcia also holds a team meeting to see if March has made any of her staff feel uncomfortable. And they just laugh the question off. March is March, they say. Now, reflecting back on the season, she thinks there's a reason March became increasingly loose with his character over time. So I think he was letting his guard down. I don't think that he was being as cautious around us anymore because he had no more use for us. So that dark side of him was suddenly coming out. Another funny thing revealed itself at the end of that 2018 camping season. Remember how campers often asked for the male manager? And at that time, Marsha chalked it up to March just being good at his job? Well, there was more to it. Eventually it came to light because some campers were telling me that he was telling them that he was the manager. If I didn't check the people in, if I wasn't there when they checked in, the people wouldn't meet me up front. So they would meet him. And so he would tell them that he was the manager. Marcia has very little contact with March for the rest of the season. He mostly works with Henry on closing duties, so it isn't difficult to keep herself away. Even her last encounter with March happens only because of a final act of kindness toward JB. The camp is already closed and JB needs his last check. March and JB are now at Henry's in Yarmouth, still working on the so-called land deal, and Marcia texts March to set up a time and place to drop off JB's check. March chooses Tim Hortons, of course. I went in and they were sitting at a booth. March was on his phone and I went over. I put the check down. I looked at JB. I said, this is yours. Good luck, my friend. March was trying to motion me to sit. I wouldn't even look at him in the eyes. I just turned around and walked away. That was the last contact that I had with him. The next time Marcia hears about March is when Henry calls her in a panic. March had disappeared after claiming he needed to go to Vancouver for a few days to finalize the sale of his house. He promised to come back with the money to buy the land from Henry's friend so he could finally break ground on his camp. They never saw him again. They couldn't reach him. JB couldn't reach him. Here and suddenly, JB, all his credit cards are gone. His work permit's gone. His passport is gone. Everything is missing. And March is gone. And JB has no money. He's in horrible, horrible debt. And the one person who was to be his savior was actually the one who ripped him off. We spoke to JB, 
and he estimates that March stole $40,000 in wages and course fees. He says he's still working hard to put the pieces of his life back together. I met Marcel in Quebec City in April 2018. He told me he could help me with my permanent residency by getting me a job on the oil rigs. March convinced JB that he had to take on-site training courses in Halifax, so they headed there in JB's old beater of a car. It ended up breaking down in Campbellton, about an hour and a half outside of Toronto. March then took the train to Halifax, mixed in with some cycling, and JB hitchhiked. They reunited at a youth hostel in Halifax before finding their way to Shuby. We asked him why he was becoming increasingly angry during his time at Shuby. Here's what he told us. Marcel kept promising work on the rigs, and the courses he made me pay for were constantly delayed, one excuse after another. The whole experience has had a lasting effect on JB. I still have nightmares about my time with Marcel. I will regret it for the rest of my life. And get this. Shortly after learning about JB's heartbreaking predicament from her handyman, Marcia found out that JB wasn't March's only victim. I received a credit card in the name of Mike Martin. In my mailbox, my address, but Mike Martin. So I called the bank and found out that indeed, this was a second credit card for Mike Martin on my account. I was floored. I I was floored, first of all, how is that even possible? Marsha learned that the type of credit card this person got was the type that a parent might share with a kid or a spouse. The card falls under the credit of a main account holder who can then add others into their account. After going into the bank, Marsha also discovered that the person who applied for the card did so from a small town in Quebec. Much to their dismay, I'm sure, this second card was mailed to Marsha in Nova Scotia, so they were never able to actually get the physical card. But there's more. Marsha discovered that the fraudster was even able to transfer money from her savings account into a PayPal account. It was over 5000 Fortunately, I discovered it very quickly. It could have been it could have ended up being a lot more. Luckily, the bank recognized that Marsha had been scammed and returned her money. And although Marsha at the time couldn't prove that there was any definitive connection to March, what we've been able to determine is that Mike Martin has been a recurring character in March's stories to his other victims. He's been a best buddy, a co-worker, an employee. It would be a big coincidence. And there's the fact that the card request was made in Quebec, a place where March has a lot of history. In any case, looking back on it now, Marcia thinks March could have had the opportunity. I had a computer that I worked on, did all my work on. I also did my banking on. I also had it in the back office. I could have been doing my banking and then being called out to the front for something and and closed down my screen but didn't close out my my page immediately. Somebody could have gone in, seen that page, possibly, with my account numbers on it. Marcia is such a lovely woman. And it's infuriating to think that her last season of a job she loved and worked at for over 15 years 
was dampened by Marcel Vautour. It should have been a time when I was having wonderful goodbyes and, and, and so on. The last few weeks, I had to look at him because it was necessary to have those extra pair of hands, those four extra pair of hands, including JB's. My last few weeks there were also overshadowed by the fact that I was seeing someone every day that I thought was such a horrible human being. About a week after hearing from her handyman about JB and discovering the bank fraud, that's when Marsha gets the call from Andrea, and the two of them piece together the lies they were made to believe over the course of those last few months. Marsha has a lot of respect for Andrea. She's top of the line. I mean, she's such a great human being, and she has such a wonderful story. And to be taken advantage the way that she was is just evil. Marsha's also done a lot of reflecting on how the whole thing transpired. I was, I was deceived for months and months. Never, ever, ever thinking that he was any more than this wonderful, caring, giving, generous, smart, witty, energetic human being. And to come to find out that from the moment he woke up in the morning, he was thinking, okay, who am I going to scam today? And how am I going to do it? And I don't even think he even thinks about it. I think it just comes so natural to him that the moment he gets out there, the first person he talks to, if there's an opportunity there, he's going to just latch on. And suddenly, but believably, March becomes exactly what's missing. For Andrea, he was a companion she didn't know she needed, who shared the same dreams. For Kim, he was a moment of freedom and escape. For Jody. He was the affectionate and passionate partner she always wanted. And for JB, he was hope for a better future. A knight in shiny armor appears, you know. And that's kind of what he was for me at that time in terms of the fact that I had just lost my handyman. <laughs> and he suddenly became everything I needed at that time. This man is smart. He, he had an amazing amount of energy. He could do anything and be successful without stealing from people. Where's the heart in that? He's not an addict. He's not addicted to drugs. He's not an alcoholic. It's just, it's evil. It's evil to hurt people like that. Most of the stories in today's episode don't involve romance. Marcel Vautour is so much more than a romance con artist. He's an opportunist who preys on people who are vulnerable and caring. So what we have found is trying to sort of build an MO for who he is as a con man. We have determined that he, it's romance fraud, business fraud, investment fraud, medical fraud, and I'm sure there's other types of fraud that he's involved in. Kim, Andrea, and Jody also identify some other patterns. They discover that March's cons are often concurrent. He's working on several victims at one time. His cons are complex. He's a world builder and weaves intricate stories with recurring characters. He claims to have lived and worked in Vietnam. 
He also says he was married for many years. He loves Tim Hortons. He claims to have heart disease and Crohn's. He's always a self-made man, an underdog who makes it despite his tragic upbringing. He also takes advantage of people's language skills. In Marjolaine's case, for example, if she had better command of English, she could have seen that the courses Marcel was charging her thousands for were free or less than $100. English was the reason Francis couldn't get a job. In JB, well, you know that story. He couldn't communicate with anyone. The saddest and maybe scariest part is how sadistic he is. He had already taken Marjolaine and Samuel for nearly $100,000. Why tell them to quit their jobs? Why allow them to go all the way to the airport with their bags packed? And what's become clear through these cases is how little the police seem to care or how little the legal system incentivizes them to. Jody and Marjolaine's cases were both deemed closed before any real work was done. Kim and Andrea were told they don't even have cases worth pursuing. And Francis and Sarah were too intimidated to even go to the police. It's that sense of abandonment that keeps Jody, Kim, and Andrea going. In fact, it's connecting with all of these victims that puts into perspective just how badly things need to change. Over time, they divide and conquer even more. In British Columbia, Kim hires a private detective, and Jody makes it her mission to push the police to take her case seriously. In Nova Scotia, Andrea creates a website called Stop March Madness, which is a tip line for victims with resources on how to protect yourself from fraud. She knows the only way to stop Marcel is strength in numbers. She also wants to keep a meticulous record of his crimes. The objective of our campaign is uh, to prevent further victimization and to transform victims into survivors by providing them support and then also to hold March accountable criminally and civilly for his actions. The women also know there must be other victims out there. They've only been investigating for a few months, but Marcel has been working for years, maybe even decades. Before long, a message comes through on the tip line. Someone reached out to us in May of 2019, saying that she had um, been with Andre for the past few months, traveling from Ontario to BC, and that he had taken off with her money. On the next episode of Catch Him If You Can, Andrea, Jody, and Kim are hot on Marcel's trail. And we asked her right away, we said, did you buy him anything? And she said, yeah, I bought him a backpack, a $300 backpack. So then Kim went online and started searching all over Vancouver Island on Kijiji for this backpack. And she found one in that was being sold in Nanaimo under the name Mark. And we knew, we knew that Mark was an alias. Catch Him If You Can is created and produced by Pink Moon Studio in partnership with Frequency Podcast Network. It's written and reported by me, your host, Amelia King and Maggie Reed. Evan King is our post-production supervisor. Chris Rennick is our editor. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Catch Him Pod. 